Hi, this is Nate Wuggiehout, producer of the WORT Local News. We know we're one of Madison's best podcasts, but let's make it official. Nominations for Madison Magazine's Best of Madison competition are open through the end of the month. Help nominate this show in the Best Podcast category. Just go to tinyurl.com slash votewart and cast your vote for the WORT Local News in the Podcast category. And you can nominate us every day through the end of the month. So vote early and vote often, maybe when you're listening to this show. Final voting will take place in June. Thanks in advance. This is Gene Delcourt and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Rebecca Blank, the former chancellor of UW-Madison, passed away last week due to cancer. Blank served as chancellor in Madison from 2013 to 2022 and oversaw the university through budget cuts and the COVID pandemic. She was instrumental in creating the Bucky's Tuition Promise that provides scholarships and grants for students from low-income households, according to the Associated Press. Blank had left UW-Madison for a job at Northwestern University in 2022, but had to step down due to illness. A Dane County judge ruled today that two Republican-sponsored ballot measures can appear on the ballot in the April election, despite being filed two days after the deadline. One of the measures is an amendment to the state constitution that would allow judges to consider a defendant's criminal history when setting cash bail amounts, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Under current law, judges may only set bail at a level designed to ensure that defendants appear in court, although they may set other bail requirements that address public safety. The proposed amendment would expand judge power so that they could set bail levels designed to be prohibitively expensive if they deemed the defendant a risk to public safety. If the measures pass the ballot, it'll be written to state, into the state constitution. The second measure is a non-binding initiative that asks if children, uh, childless adults, excuse me, should be required to look for work before receiving welfare benefits, which is already required by state law. Wisconsin Supreme Court candidate Dan Kelly has been paid nearly $120,000 by the Republican National Committee and the Wisconsin Republican Party for legal advice over the past three years, according to filings with the Federal Election Commission. As part of that legal advice, Kelly helped advise the Republican Party on their plan to convene fake electors to claim that Wisconsin voted for Trump in the 2020 election, according to Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. A spokesperson for Kelly said that those discussions are covered by attorney-client privilege and declined to state whether Kelly advised for or against the fake elector scheme. While the Wisconsin Supreme Court is officially nonpartisan, the four candidates in the election have signaled whether they lean conservative or liberal. Kelly, who lost a run for Supreme Court seat in 2020, ran his campaign out of the Republican Party headquarters in Madison. The official newspaper of Evansville in Rock County has come under fire after publishing ads that accused members of the LGBTQ community of grooming children and acting in a perverted manner. The newspaper, the Evansville Review, publishes city notices and and meeting minutes and is distributed to all city residents. The paper also accepts letters to the editor and advertisements, including the inflammatory ones that paid paid for by local pastors, reported WKOW. An Evansville City Council member has begun a petition calling on the paper to stop publishing these letters, but so far the paper has said it has no intention of stopping. 
The Urban League of Greater Madison announced a new $2.5 million donation today from the local nonprofit group Ascendium. The new donation will go toward the fundraising goal for the planned Black Business Hub that is planned to help support entrepreneurs of color in the Madison community. Ascendium has partnered with the Urban League in the past and is a nonprofit that works on student loan software and counseling. A Madison Metro School District committee has delivered its list of recommendations to improve student wellness and safety to the school board after working on them for the past 11 months. The committee, which is made up of students and community members, was formed to come up with a plan to address safety concerns in the school system following the 2021 school year. The committee's recommendation ran through a number of topics, but focused on expanding access to implementation of programs and initiatives that the school system already offers, reports the Cap Times. The recommendation now goes to the school board, who are planning on discussing them at their operations work group meeting next month. And now on to today's top stories. Tomorrow is the spring primary election where voters both in Madison and across the state will decide who gets to go on the ballot in April. But while the race for state Supreme Court is technically nonpartisan, both sides of the political aisle are sounding the alarm, saying that the election could have major ramifications for the future of Wisconsin politics. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. The polls will be open from 7 a.m. until 8 p.m. tomorrow. On your ballot may be Madison Alders or Madison Mayor. Across the state, voters will also decide the top two candidates for Wisconsin Supreme Court. While all candidates this spring are technically nonpartisan, both Democrats and Republicans have spent big money to support the four candidates running for a seat on the state's top court. According to the Associated Press, nearly $7 million have been spent on the race as of last Tuesday. Deb Cronmiller is the executive director of the League of Women's Voters, Wisconsin. This morning, she told WORT's Brian Standing that this level of ideology is not typical for state Supreme Court candidates. The candidates, it does seem to that they themselves are actually trying to appeal both to, you know, conservative and liberal voters, you know, depending who they are. And that is not something that Wisconsin has seen typically. Two Supreme Court candidates, Dane County Judge Everett Mitchell and Milwaukee Judge Janet Protasewicz, are backed by liberal groups. The other two candidates, Waukesha Judge Jennifer Doro and former Justice Dan Kelly, have been supported by conservative groups. The state Supreme Court election has drawn national headlines and Democrats have been repeatedly pointing out the high stakes. Who is elected could be the deciding vote as the court is likely gearing up to decide a slew of issues, including a challenge to the state's 1849 abortion ban. Yesterday, the Madison Reproductive Rights Coalition for Healthcare, or MARCH, held a rally in the state capitol, urging people to head to the polls. Caitlin Benedetto, a student at UW-Madison and member of MARCH, spoke at yesterday's rally about the importance of tomorrow's election. We know that the majority of people in Wisconsin support legal abortion. To restore our rights to bodily autonomy and reproductive freedom, it is essential that you vote in the primary this Tuesday and in the general spring election on April 4th. There is an open seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and if we elect a pro-choice candidate to fill that seat, we could see the 1849 ban overturned. Another issue that could head to the Supreme Court is the state's legislative maps. Democrats have promised to bring Wisconsin's maps back to the state Supreme Court should a liberal-leaning justice be elected. 
Jay Heck is the executive director of the nonprofit advocacy group Common Cause Wisconsin. He says that if either of the liberal candidates make it onto the court in April, Common Cause will be carefully looking at their legal options to bring redistricting back to the Supreme Court. Usually redistricting is done after the census year, which is usually end of the decade, 2010, 2020. But that's only because it has to be done then. It can be done and it can be revisited anytime by a legal action, however. And so certainly you're going to see that happen if on April 4th there is a, a switch from 4-3 conservative to 4-3 progressive. As of 9 a.m. on Friday, the city of Madison's clerk's office had sent out over 23,000 absentee ballots to Madison residents, of which around 14,300 had been returned. Additionally, around 4,500 residents had voted early at sites around the city. All voters will need to show photo identification, whether it's a Wisconsin driver's license or a passport. And you'll need to be registered. You can register to vote at the polls tomorrow, but if you need to do that, you'll need to bring some form of proof of residence. That includes a utility bill issued within the last 90 days, a paycheck, or a government-issued document showing your address. To find your polling location, go to myvote.wi.gov. And to find our interviews with candidates appearing on tomorrow's ballot, head to our candidate guide at wortfm.org. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. WORT reporter Greg Jaboski contributed audio for this story. The Wisconsin Department of Safety and Professional Services faces an an audit amid service complaints, but the agency has a large surplus to add staff while the legislature has rebuffed the governor's request for more help. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Republican lawmakers have authorized an audit of the Wisconsin Department of Safety and Professional Services. It follows years of the GOP rejecting calls to add staff to address service delays, even with a huge surplus of agency funds. The staffing requests were made by Democratic Governor Tony Evers as the department amassed a $47 million surplus from fees. But DSPS needs legislative approval to hire more workers. Alcohol and drug counselor Sarah Warrenin says she has encountered long delays in getting her professional license because of the standoff. She moved to Wisconsin to qualify for student loan forgiveness, but the license is required and getting all the credentials hasn't been easy. Because I don't have the full license, I can't get the student loan forgiveness. I feel like I'm wasting time. The Joint Legislative Audit Committee recently voted for a nonpartisan audit to review all aspects of the department. The committee's Republicans voted in favor of the audit, and Democrats voted no. A key Republican declined to say whether agency positions would be added in the state budget. Pandemic relief aid has allowed more agency services to improve, but that funding runs out in June. Mark Herstand of the National Association of Social Workers Wisconsin chapter says the department has always been chronically understaffed, but frustration among his members seems to have peaked in the past two years, despite efforts by the Evers administration to improve the agency. DSPS has plenty of money to hire the staff like any other business would do in that kind of situation, but they're not given the authority to do so. This makes no rational sense. And the audit comes amid high tension between the GOP-controlled legislature and Governor Evers over agency administration. It also dovetails with a broader push by conservative activists and some GOP lawmakers to get the government out of licensing and regulating certain professions, such as music, art and dance therapists, cosmetology trainees, and interior designers. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. 
Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. This story was produced with original reporting from Matthew DeFore for Wisconsin Watch. It's 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The spring primary election takes place tomorrow, and over the past two months, we've spoken with almost all of the candidates running in the seven alder races appearing on the ballot across Madison. Tonight, we conclude our primary election coverage with Barbara Harrington McKinney, current alder in District 1, now running in District 20 due to redistricting. She spoke with WORT News Director Shally Pittman last night, I mean last week, excuse me, about why she's running for District 20 alder. The 2023 spring primary election is tomorrow, and there will be several districts with candidates for Madison Alder on your ballot. One of those districts is District 20 on Madison's west side, containing Elver Park in the Green Tree neighborhood. Alder Barbara Harrington McKinney is one of the four candidates running in that primary, and we're on the line with her now. Uh, Hi, Alder. Hello, how are you? I'm doing all right. Thanks for joining us and uh, for letting us squeeze you in. So tell me about yourself. Uh, What do you do professionally and how long have you been an alder on the council? Well, first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity um, to hear me speak into this very serious campaign. I was elected alder in 2015 and I've served since 2015. Um, I was in the first district, and with the redistricting, I'm shifted into the 20, uh, 20th uh, district. And um, I've done uh, a myriad of things related to um, organization and um, restorative justice and community planning. What I do now, I'm the executive administrator at my local church, um, and I'm responsible for the day-to-day operations of that church. You mentioned some things that you're proud of in your terms in office. Can you tell us about one or two things that you're particularly proud of while serving as Alder? Oh, absolutely. I was very um, instrumental in forming the Elva Park Employment and Training Center, and that was the old I think Griff's a restaurant, and it had been uh, vacant for a while. And my predecessor, uh, Lisa Subek, engaged and got the city to purchase it, but it had sat vacant for a while. And my, my proudest moment is to really sit down at the table with the city and to move that initiative forward. And I'm proud of that because the city came in with their plans, but I did a robust community engagement. And in some of those community engagements, we had like 50, 60, 75 community people to come in. Um, We fed them and they went through um, how they wanted the building to look, the functionality of the building, and uh, even down to the colors of the building and the size of the room. And I mentioned that because that's what community engagement is. They own that building and that building needed to um, be something that they could use in their lives. And so I think that um, there, are, there are many of them, but that was one of the, the ones that um, 
is uh, stands out a lot for me. Um, so you represent right now uh, District 1, but you're switching up districts uh, in this election because of redistricting, right? That is correct. Yes, you have the u- somewhat unique experience of, well, you're running against three other candidates, including <laughs> the incumbent older for that district. So what's oh, that experience been like? I uh, initially I I held back because I wasn't sure whether I was going to run or not. Um, this has been the hardest. I love being an alder. I love the engagement with working and hearing with community members. But this has been a very very um, a difficult two years for me. It's just been challenging, and. Um, I was on the verge of walking away, and then I took a trip to uh, West Africa, and I really started evaluating what my contribution had been to making the space better um, and improving on the space as I found it. And I realized that there was still work to be done. When you mention a trip to West Africa, are you talking about the Gambia and the Gambia delegation? Yes. Yes. How was that? Oh, my goodness. And I'm glad you asked me that because this is the intensity and the fire in my belly and the commitment that I had work undone. And what was most, the whole trip was amazing. But what was most uh, impactful for me is when I went to the Gambia and I uh, visited Gory Island and that is the place where slaves were housed until they they um, boarded the um, slave ships, you know, going to the slave trade. And I stayed. I sat in that in that passageway where where men were huddled together and women were huddled together and children were huddled together in these small spaces. But what impacted me most was when I stood in the passageway where men and women would travel to get on the slave ships. And literally, I could see someone turning around and looking at me and saying, well, Barbara, what did you do to make a difference? And and literally, tears started rolling down my eyes. And it was not just me. I mean, it, it had that impact on so many other people. But it really had an impact on me because I realized that I was not 100% present over these last two years um, as, uh, as an alder. And I knew that I needed to do more and I could not walk away. It would have been easy for me to walk away. But, but, but when I realized and I was asked the question, what have you done? to make a difference in the lives of the people that you say are so important to me. And I couldn't walk away. Wow, that is uh, a a lot coming out of your trip to West Africa. And we're talking about uh, your trip to the Gambia, which was, of course, part of the sister city delegation that happened just about a month ago, month or two ago. You mentioned a lot of issues facing District 20, but I'd like you to pick one and briefly tell us what you think the most pressing issue is for District 20. The most pressing issue 
for District 20 is public safety. And when I say public safety, people immediately go to, um, you know, the police budget. But public safety is um, a collaboration and working together uh, with police, the fire. Uh, but what stands out in my mind is, is that just Wednesday night, we had a, uh, a fatality. Um, there was a, a person, there was a hit and run. The person was killed and also the dog. It was speeding. And so what is happening now is that when we talk about public safety and every door that I knocked on, public safety came to rose to the top. And it wasn't just police public safety. They wanted to live in a community where they could feel comfortable and safe. I just want to bring us back to what we maybe traditionally think of as public safety and the Madison Police Department. There are some changes on the horizon. Um, You recently introduced a a proposal to disband the Public Safety Review Committee. There's changing oversight over the police, you could say. Um, There are also things that are coming, like body cameras and a pilot program. Um, Possibly it requires another approval this year. Can you tell us how you come to feel about oversight of over the police and also how you feel about body cameras? Real quick here. Body cameras. I was elected in 2015 and um, pilot for the North Side was introduced then and it did not pass. So I've been supportive of body cameras since I was elected in 2015. I still am uh, supportive of body cameras. And I'm supportive because it, uh, we cannot depend upon cell phones to see what happened. And so um, it is an, uh, another tool in the tool belt, and it is a vision into what happened for the public to see, and it's also a vision for the police. And it is, is a way to hold Um, each side accountable. So yes, I am in support of body cameras. And for those who said it's too expensive, um, and so I would ask for them to talk to the mothers who have lost their child because of gun violence. And the very thing that they all say is, I wish I had known what happened to my child. And so body cameras is on the way, and I absolutely I'm not deviating from that. I've always supported body-worn cameras. Okay, and can you tell us about your views on police oversight? Um, Police oversight is community policing. And so the reason that um, the Public Safety and Review Committee, and that's a whole nother gamut, um, I believe that the police monitor and the oversight uh, can, we, can work together to make the, um, have the community feel more comfortable and more trusting of police. We're working in that direction, and they're all at the table. And so even Chief Barnes has said that they've got a lot of work to do to reinstill public confidence, and they're moving in the right direction. 
I've been talking with Alder Barbara Harrington McKinney, who currently represents District 1 on the Madison Common Council. She's running to represent District 20 in a packed primary race tomorrow. And as a quick plug, you can find all of our other interviews with candidates for Madison Alder, Madison Mayor, and Wisconsin Supreme Court online at wortfm.org. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Jean Delcourt. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, which means that Forward Lookout host Brenda Conkle sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings to come in Madison and Dane County. This week, Dane County shops for bomb protection suits, and Madison prepares to train a new batch of alders. Well, the time is coming again. We're talking about local government and what's happening this week. Well, and we're, of course, we are, of course, joined by Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com. How are you doing, Brenda? Oh, I'm doing better. <laughs> well, let's just say from the outset, yeah, um, the blog that uh, ForwardLookout.com that you, we refer people to and where everyone should check out that has all this information we're about to talk about. It was under some maintenance, and it's back up and running now, right? Yes, and a few mishaps along the way, but I have straightened it all out, and it should be functioning now, and hopefully it's faster than it was before. Excellent. All right, well, let's start with yes. Dane County, and at 5.30, the Personnel and Finance Committee, they met, and they're probably still in progress. What What are the important agenda items from from Personnel and Finance? So it is a bunch of routine items, you know, contracts and there's always things that the sheriff's department is buying. So they're buying a bomb suit this week. Um, yes. And then there is a few things um, like there's the tax deeding of delinquent tax properties. Um, and so if people have been delinquent in their taxes for more than, I think it's three years, um, then they um, actually make a motion to actually take the property back from the person. And so that that's interesting. And then there is a discussion item and there that says meet and confer. So that must be something I'm guessing about some sort of union contract. It didn't specify which one that it was. Um, and then there's a couple of affordable housing projects on there and some more funding going for food pantry gardens and some other things. So now uh, we'll move on to Tuesday. Of course, there's a primary election. So hope everyone has either voted or it makes a has a plan to vote. Usually we don't have meetings on Tuesday, um, but we do. So just something to keep in mind. Uh, Should we talk about the tree board that's meeting on Election Day? (laughs) Sure. There's actually three meetings on Election Day, four meetings, five meetings on Election Day. Yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe the county doesn't care if it's a city election. I'm, I'm unclear, but um, Tree Board will be meeting. They have a hybrid meeting and they will be talking about, you know, some other um, administrative things like board vacancies and work plan reviews. And then they're getting a bunch of reports. OK, well, let's go on to Wednesday. No, Thursday. There's no meeting Wednesday for the county. So that's is odd considering that <laughs> it's usually Tuesday that they wouldn't on an election week. But well, we're just going to blow right past it. What about health and human needs at 530? Do they have any important agenda items? So health and human needs will be getting two presentations. Um, one will be about the Children, Youth and Families Child Protective Services Overview. 
Um, and so they'll be getting a presentation about that. They'll also be getting um, a presentation or be voting on the vacation policy for Badger Prairie Healthcare Center. Um, they're also getting a quarterly report on ARPA. Um, so that's where all the um, COVID Ooh, yeah. funds that are coming to the county, where are they going? How are they being spent? What, you know, what are the latest updates on that? Let's move on now to the city of Madison. Again, meetings on Tuesday, Election Day, a little weird, but that's just how it is this February <laughs> primary, I guess. Uh, we have at 1230 a virtual meeting of the Mass and Metropolitan Sewerage District. It's Employee Leadership Council. What is this about? Are they getting a new leader? You know, they they continue to have these meetings, and I am a little bit baffled by what the agendas actually mean, um, but they discuss issue requests usually then they usually go into closed session and then they come back out of closed session and review what their action items are so um i believe that this is about you know some employee rights um, and some employee benefits that that would be coming to the benefit to the the employees that work there okay well interesting um and let's move on to wednesday the street use staff commission has no agenda they have a virtual meeting at 10 a.m so Evidently, they won't be talking about anything, right? Yeah, they didn't have one this morning. They may have one by now, so you might want to double check, but they didn't have one this morning. Okay. Well, let's just go to the Board of Public Works. That's happening on Wednesday at 4.30, an important committee. Yeah, I think probably the two interesting things there is that they are getting the final report and proposed solutions for the Pheasant Branch Watershed watershed. Um, and then they are also getting the 2022 Board of Public Works annual report. Um, I don't remember them having an annual report in the past, so I was kind of curious what's actually in it. So I want to take a look, click on that and see one. Um, they may have had one last year, but it's not something that they've been doing for years and years. Yeah, and why is this an important committee? It, all of the all of the construction that you see, all the all the things that um you you know see that are diverting traffic here and there is not just the streets, but also like when developers yeah. uh, get permissions to build in the right of way or um are doing some of the construction for the city, you know maybe the curb and gutter around the development that they're creating or whatever. So they they have their hands in a lot of things, a lot of things that. Most people don't want to pay attention to, but it is important stuff to make sure that, you know, trees have um, protections when they are doing construction around them and, and things like that. All right. Also, uh, on Wednesday, we have a virtual meeting at 5 p.m. of the Transportation Commission. Transportation Commission has several things on their agenda. One thing that I think people usually are interested in is traffic signals. Um, and so every year they have a priority list of where traffic signals are going to go in or not go in. Um, and so that's usually of interest to neighborhoods. They're also getting their quarterly traffic safety report and uh, vision zero safety data update. And then they are also doing a few other routine items with some grant applications and um, some non-competitive purchases of some items. So they're, they're going to be getting design group to help with um, some bike and ped analysis services mm, okay. and some other things like that. 5.30 Wednesday, a virtual meeting of the Common Council Executive Committee, and they have a, kind of a short agenda, and this is a, a little bit of a lame duck council at the moment. So what, what exactly is leadership doing? So the biggest thing they're probably being talked about is the 
all their onboarding and ongoing yeah. training. Um, you know, when alders first get elected, it's somewhat of a surprise. And suddenly you're invited to like nights and nights and nights of meetings to meet with various city staff members to learn about the city. Um, so you can sort of jump in and uh, start making decisions. So um, how that goes and, and how quickly it gets done um, and how effective it is, that's some of what they'll be talking about. And, you know, I've seen it done several different ways over the many years. And I, and I think they're still trying to perfect it. Um, they're also going to be talking about those uh, outgoing resolutions for when alders are, are leaving the city council. Um, oh. You know, you got all these anxious people who just got elected who want to get um, going on and get it get sworn in. And, and then, you know, hours and hours go by as we're recognizing outgoing alders. So I think they're trying to to solve that problem. I don't know if they'll come to an agreement about mm. it or not. So but a proper send off. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then there's also a proposal about ranked choice voting for um, budget amendments. Wow. Uh, well, that's kind of hard to envision, but. Right. I think this is more advisory. I don't think it's like the final vote or anything, but I think it's just like, you know, it, it'll give people a, an opportunity to see like if what work they need to do on the amendments to get them to pass. And finally, uh, 4 p.m., the Board of Canvassers for the City of Madison will meet at Friday at the city county building at 4 p.m. And just, you know, we're mentioning this mostly just because it's a transparent election process we have, right? Anyone can go watch and stuff. Exactly. Um. Yeah, so they're meeting at 4 o'clock. They'll be looking at those provisional ballots. So if somebody is you know, didn't have the right paperwork with them, but they voted, their ballot gets set aside until they bring in the right information. And so they'll be doing that. And then um, they're certifying the results of the mayoral and aldermanic primaries. And then they're drawing names to determine what order the names will go on the ballot for the April ballot for people who went past the primary. All right. Well, if you would like to uh, learn more about what's happening this week in local government, head on over to the newly improved FordLookout.com. So, Brenda, hey, thank you for giving us some time today. And no problem. Thanks. Yesterday was the anniversary of the day a U.S. court found a ship repair firm guilty of discriminating against and trafficking 500 Indian workers. The tale of courage and persistence was seen as a win for the hundreds of workers. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Yesterday, February 19th, was the anniversary of the day in 2015 that a U.S. court found ship repair firm Signal guilty of discriminating against and trafficking 500 Indian workers. The day before, a federal jury awarded $14 million to the Indian guest workers. They had been lured to the U.S. on promises of good work and green cards. They were illegally charged $20,000 to come to rebuild storm-damaged oil rigs in the U.S. Gulf Coast. $20,000 is several generations of wealth in India. They were sold an American dream, but dropped into an American nightmare, says Sakat Soni a labor organizer who tells her story in his just-released book, The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. The workers came to the U.S. on the H-2B visa 
for workers going to an employer with a temporary work shortage. Once in the U.S., they found themselves trapped. The visas allowed them to work in the U.S. for only a few months. During that time, they were bound to one employer, and they were trapped in a way that a federal grand jury recognized as modern-day forced labor. The Indian workers soon found themselves in a small, isolated town, Pascagoula, Mississippi. They had been promised apartments, but when they arrived, said Sony, conditions were atrocious. There were no apartments. There were no decent living quarters. The men lived 24 to a trailer in a company man camp. That was actually what the company called it. And this man camp was built on a toxic waste dump. The men were fed frozen rice and moldy bread. One man, Ebi Raju, was up on a platform doing a dangerous welding job when he got a phone call from his pregnant wife in India, 10,000 miles away, as she was going into surgery. Not only could he not be there with her, but he wouldn't even see his son for years. Another worker, Jiani Gurvinder Singh, he's a Sikh, and for him, the greatest indignity wasn't the food. It wasn't the squalor labor camp surrounded by barbed wire. It was being forced to violate a religious oath and shave his beard because he didn't have the English skills or access to the basic rights to explain why, in his faith, it was a sin. These were some of the kinds of indignities the workers faced. The men were free to come and go, but they were kept on 24-hour shifts that they would rotate on, the day shift and the night shift. But they were afraid to leave, afraid of being deported. The company had plenty of work and had kept them past the 10-month visa limit. The workers had no choice but to stay and continue to ask for their green cards. Incredibly, they were charged $1,000 a month rent. Eventually, one of the workers called Sony. Sony explained, I walked into a church where he and the other workers would meet with me. I expected to meet with three workers. I opened the door and there were a hundred workers in this church sitting there having a secret meeting with me. And as I spoke to them over the next few weeks, a man by the name of Rajan came forward. Through Rajan, who had organized strikes on other work sites, Sony learned about the inner workings of the camp, the pressures on the men, the reasons they felt trapped, the nature of their debts. He also taught Sony how to cook. Over many months and many meals, we orchestrated an escape out of a heist movie. It involved a lot of wild turkey whiskey, a lot of awful flavored cigars, to bribe the guards and a fictitious Indian wedding that let us ferry 500 men into a local hotel, five men at a time, Sony explained. But that was only the beginning of a three-year journey that was half freedom march, half conspiracy thriller. Sony smuggled spices into the camp. Rajan took over the camp kitchen and prepared a simple meal of dal with mustard, rice, with curry leaves. Through a series of meals, the men were brought back to life and agreed to a plan. After the escape, hundreds of workers protested at the company gates. They were chanting. The press was there. In an extraordinary moment, the men took their hard hats and threw them into the air over the company gates in a symbolic show that they no longer wanted to work for this oil rigger. They reported the company and its recruiters to the Justice Department. They campaigned for the Justice Department to open a human trafficking criminal investigation. They marched from New Orleans to Washington, D.C., seeking federal action, but also filed civil suit that ended up in a civil trial in 2015, where the workers were awarded $14 million. The CEO of the company issued an apology. After the New York Times exposed ICE company collusion, federal hearings were held, and they were given trafficking visas. They were able to get green cards, bring their families to the U.S., and become U.S. citizens. Abby Raju, one of our central Indian organizers, sent Sony a beautiful photo of him voting for the first time in Houston in the midterm elections.
And that is our story for today. For the past of the past, I'm Harry Richardson. Madison may have warmed up for a few days, but that won't last much longer. Another winter storm is anticipated for later this week. Weather producer Caitlin Davis has more on what to expect. After a few big snowstorms, the Madison area has warmed back up into the 40s. Current temperatures are sitting at 41 degrees with 65% humidity. Variably cloudy skies will continue into tonight with steady winds coming from the south at 10 miles per hour. A low pressure system will be coming through tonight, bringing in a cold front right along with it. Light snow is possible tonight, but not likely for the Madison area as there will be drier air. We are a bit cooler than we were a year ago today, last year's high reaching 51 degrees. But the historical average for Madison on this day is 32.9 degrees. Thankfully, overnight we will be seeing pretty warm. Last year's temperatures dropped all the way down to 18 degrees, but tonight, temperatures should only be dropping down into the 30s. Don't let the bright sun fool you tomorrow. The sun is 3.4% larger in the winter because it's 3.4% closer. That's over 3 million times closer. This is because in the winter, Earth's orbit is elliptical, meaning that the path right now is slightly oval-shaped, making the Earth closer to the sun in the northern hemisphere. So while the sun may look bigger, it's certainly not warmer. Tomorrow will be very cloudy, but the sun will have moments where it breaks through the clouds, leaving low cloud cover. Tomorrow's high will be in the lower 30s, with winds coming from the west between 10 and 20 miles per hour. Tomorrow there will be a slight chance for some snow, but overnight we will see some occasional snow showers, with accumulation looking to be under an inch. Tomorrow night dropping down to 27 degrees with continued high wind speeds. And after tomorrow, we are back to the Wisconsin winters, with Wednesday having a potential winter storm warning yet again. High wind speeds are to be expected between 20 and 30 miles per hour, and temperatures will be reaching a high of 33 and a low of 27. As of now, there is more of a chance than not that the storm will be occurring. And the track that it's on right now shows we will be seeing anywhere between 3 to 5 inches of accumulation. With icy and snowy conditions, it is recommended that you stay off the roads. The CDC recommends you change following distance from 3 to 4 seconds to 5 to 6 seconds and just to slow down overall. You should prepare a roadside emergency kit with portable chargers, warm clothes, food, emergency lighting, jumper cables, a spare tire, and blankets. Thursday is looking to continue with snow showers with the possibility of mixed winter precipitation. A high of 32 for Thursday with continued high wind speeds between 10 and 20 miles per hour with variably cloudy conditions. The low first Thursday night dropping down into the single digits with continued high wind speeds overnight leaving Friday to reach the upper teens and dropping down to the lower teens overnight. While the warm weather lasted, I visited State Street and Westtown Mall to ask people how they spent their warmer 40 degree days in winter. And here's what they had to say. Lauren Elias. Um, I go get a coffee and I go for a nice long walk around campus. I go get a cold coffee so that I can like pretend it's summertime. Marianne Cote. Um, if it's sunny, I'm mostly feeling happy and I'll put on like a cute outfit to go to class just because during the snowy days I just can't do that. It's usually sweatpants and a sweatshirt. Um, so I'd say feeling good. Kendra. I usually just spend it indoors. I'm not trying to be outside when it's 40 degrees out. Uh, I'm Kaya. I mean, a nice nap when it's all garbage outside is pretty good. Uh, Charles Barkley. Um, probably hanging out with the boys. I'm probably going to go 
to a friend's apartment, hang out. I'll be honest, we probably smoke a little bit of weed, have a good time, watch some TV. My name's Maya. Um, I usually like to go out, go for a little walk, or maybe to a cafe nearby, but um, definitely not stay inside because it's so rare that it's warm, you know, but yeah. I love Chazen Cafe. <laughs> um, I also like Indie Coffee, which is near the region. I'm gonna stick with Chazen. That's probably, yeah, my favorite. It's just because I'm not from Wisconsin or from the U.S., so seeing so much snow so often, it's just very, it's like a culture shock to me. It's very Wisconsin-esque, you know, particularly to this part of the Midwest, but um, it's just annoying, I would say. Like, when you wake up, you're like, okay, it looks pretty because it's all white, but then when you have to go out in the snow with the snow in your face, going class to class, it's just frustrating. So. My name is Sam. I usually spend my 40 degree days outside. Just getting the spring started, I like to walk around the lake. I really enjoy just going around and getting outside and sightseeing. And sometimes if it's warm enough, I'll get on my bike and I'll go around the lake on my bike. And it's usually really great and I can't wait for it to get warmer outside. Um, I usually look for turtles, just turtles for the most part, and fish sometimes but I'm a big turtle guy, and that's that's about it. For WORT News, I'm your weather producer, Caitlin Davis. With continued national debate on how to tell American history, the 1619 Project documentary couldn't be more timely, says feature contributor Harry Richardson. Richardson breaks down the docuseries, which is based off the hit New York Times series of the same name. They say our people were born on the water. The very first enslaved Africans were brought here over 400 years ago. Since then, no part of America's story has been untouched by the legacy of slavery. That was clip from the trailer for the 1619 Project, directed by Roger Ross Williams. It's based on a series in the New York Times that became a best-selling book. This impressive film centers New York Times journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones and her family. She is our guide to systemic racism and the continuing effects of slavery. Hannah Jones interviews a better-than-usual assortment of talking heads, mostly African-American women with a few black men and a couple of white guys thrown in for good measure. The six-part series recently started playing on Hulu. Episodes are about an hour long, each with a theme, democracy, race, music, capitalism, fear, and justice. Each episode begins with a story from Hannah Jones's family and moves smoothly to the experience of African Americans in general, with a particular focus on how the past affects the present. For example, the first episode takes us to her hometown of Waterloo, Iowa, where she was raised by a white mother and a black father. She interviews family members about her veteran father's patriotism. He raised a flag each morning in front of their modest house. The first episode Democracy talks about the contradictory position of African Americans who gave so much to the country but received so little in return. The second episode, Race, illuminates one of the less covered grim legacies of slavery, the disproportionate problems black women face during pregnancy and its aftermath, problems which occur regardless of income or educational background. Linking this to the past, Hannah Jones explains the cold calculus of forced sex under slavery. Enslaved women suffered doubly, picking cotton, but also carrying the enslavers' children. The children born of these assaults were slaves, enhancing the white plantation owner's wealth. Episode 3, Music, starts off on a personal note with Hannah Jones warmly recalling her father's love of music. She interviews the last surviving member of The Temptations, her father's favorite group, Otis Williams. She speaks with New York Times critic at large, Wesley Morris, about African-American music and also white America's early minstrel shows 
and blackface. They traced the music that came primarily from the African-American experience, gospel, soul, blues, and jazz, stating at one point, without the blues, there would be no jazz. They conclude with black-influenced rock and roll and rap. Hannah Jones interviews the African-American woman rapper known as Rhapsody. Episode 4, Capitalism, was the most effective, clearly naming the key problem and possible solutions. Hannah Jones draws a straight line from unionization efforts of Amazon workers to slavery. She interviews several Amazon workers, one from Staten Island, another from Bessemer, Alabama. They describe the heavily regimented workforce and their strict work quotas of processing 350 to 400 packages a day. They work 10-hour shifts and are constantly monitored. Although slavery is over, the value of a human being is still measured by their labor. Hannah Jones describes how her dad and uncle were ground down each day, back in hands, hurting at the end of each workday, like generations of her family. And like many African Americans, they died before they could collect Social Security. Hannah Jones interviews Robin D.G. Kelly, a UCLA historian, author, and activist who explains that capitalism is based on exploitation of labor. In America, there is a particularly high rate of inequality and brutality in its capitalism. He concludes, America has a racialized capitalism. There is no such thing as a non-racial capitalism in the U.S. Hannah Jones also speaks with Brown University history professor, author, Seth Rockman, about how cotton in the 19th century was the equivalent of oil in the 20th. New York banks played a key role in the financialization of slaves. Most of America's wealth came from slavery, and the 4 million enslaved people were valued at seven times the worth of railroads and banks combined. Episode 5, Fear, takes Hannah Jones to her dad's birthplace in Mississippi and more family stories. She describes the white fear of black success and of black liberation. Fear expressed in the cruel repression of slavery and later Jim Crow. White's fear grew after blacks freed themselves in Haiti in 1801, and the story continues after the Civil War, the rise of the KKK, the civil rights movements of the 60s, and up to the Black Lives Matter movement. Episode 6 makes a great case for reparations, citing slavery, generations of programs that excluded blacks, from the Homestead Act to the New Deal, the GI Bill, and redlining that prevented blacks from accumulating generational wealth. One activist who has worked for reparations for 20 years says that if the true cost for what blacks were owed were added up, the final bill would total $14 trillion. Seems only fair. I highly recommend this series. It just started playing on Hulu. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. The 1619 Project, it's not a history. It really is talking about America today. Black Americans' contributions are undeniable. No people had a greater claim to the American flag than we do. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporters were Greg Jaboski and Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leap for technical production. Our very own protector of the realm, Victor Calzoni, engineered this show. Nate Wiggyhout produced this newscast. And Shali Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcasts. Subscribe on iTunes, podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.